Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Radlick. I'm the host of this podcast. Thank you for joining me. Uh, not so long ago, I did a, uh, a podcast with Warren Mundine, who I assisted in editing a book of his speeches and articles. I wrote an introduction for that book, incidentally, and that introduction uh, puts me down in black and white as being extremely critical about the lack of civility in public discourse, uh, the willingness of people to call each other, call other people names, and the willingness of uh, people to not engage intellectually in discussion, but rather play the man um, instead of the ball. My guest today has been the subject of some criticism on Twitter because of an article he wrote for news.com.au that sought to analyse the issue of Black Rights Matter and how that uh, plays out in the Australian context. It's undeniable that things do resonate when we're across jurisdictions and across countries. But sometimes circumstances are different and the nuances go missing. Uh, my guest uh, my, my guest today is Anthony Dillon. He's a lecturer at the Australian Catholic University and he's got a perspective on uh, Indigenous affairs and the way in which we need to be looking at it. He is Indigenous himself, by the way. So this is going to be a fascinating discussion. Anthony, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you. Now... Uh, Rather than dive into the substance of your column first, we probably need to build context. Um, and, it, and probably the context goes back a fortnight ago when in Minneapolis, Minneapolis George, uh, George Floyd was killed um, while being apprehended and by the police in that city. Where were you when you heard about it and what was your reaction? I think, like everyone else, just a terrible thing. Um, and, you know, often we hear there's two sides to every story. Um, for this particular one, you know, I'm happy to hear another side, but I cannot see how it was anything other than a, a brutal act. Um, you know, it was just uh, the man deserves to be put away for the rest of his life. And the people and his um, colleagues have just stood there watching him. So in, in, in that sense, it, it, the video is what eliminates any doubt in your mind that this was an, an outright homicide the way it does for others? Yes. Uh, um, I mean, regardless of what the man may have done before, um, I just can't see why, especially given that he had other police there to help him and back him up, why he couldn't have just released the hole, why they couldn't have just, um, you know, a couple of guys restrain him um, in a much lighter way. And when when you've got, I can understand, if you're one copper, you've got to apply a fair amount of force. But if you've got two or three or four, they can all comfortably, uh, you know, they can all contribute to restraining the man in a safe, comfortable way. Um, So I just can't see how an excuse can be made 
be made for this one. Well, it's actually, um, it's led to what was almost a fortnight of, of an outpouring of, uh, of grief, of concern, protests in the streets of, across America. Um, you've no doubt watched the US situation. How do you view the US situation at the current time, given the given the amount of activity, given the amount of um, uh, advocacy that's gone on for the past fortnight? Uh, I guess I'd call it expected. Um, okay. Where you've got, you know, people jumping on the bandwagon. I hate to say that. I you know, really don't think all their outrage is genuine. Um, I just want to jump on the bandwagon. And then you have counter voices, um, and it's been refreshing to see a lot of YouTube clips of people with counter voices um, chipping in. When you talk about counter voices, what like, do you and, mean? People like, people like Candace Owens, um, and I've seen a few um, videos where people have said that the protesters um, and looters if you want to separate them um, where their response has been excessive and it's you know morphed into from this one event it's morphed into uh, you know police uh, so such bastards um, and you know it's just grown out of proportion in a harmful way. Um, to what extent, and then, do you feel that the, the central cause gets smothered by some of this other, um, some of the other noise, if I can call it that? Yes, it is. It is uh, crimes against. Um, you know, property and, and, and the crimes against individuals where people have been injured and hurt in, in those uh, in those situations. To what extent does that smother the actual cause? Uh, to, a, to a large degree. Um, it takes it in a different um, direction. Um, so the focus should be on this this one bad police officer and for that particular officer too, I would find it hard to believe that this was a you know this sort of thing was atypical for him. I don't think it would have been a, a one-off thing, and there's already been reports uh, questioning his behaviour. So the focus should very much be on him, and to send a loud message to the rest of the force. Um, well, we know that most of you are great. Keep in mind, if you're a bad egg, we will find you and we'll throw you out. Because when you when you look at the um, the situation in the US, it, it's clear when you observe it that there are you know, different actors taking the stage, and there are different components to it, and this kind of bleeds into what you're, you've been talking about domestically, doesn't it, uh, Anthony, which is there are 
different elements to um, the the issue, and different people, different individuals attach themselves to the cause. Am I right in saying that? Yes, yeah, they do like to attach themselves to the cause, uh, not with the best, not always with the best of intentions. What is the? I mean. It, it, Let's break this down for the listeners because there are things that resonate here when people look at something that's happened to um, George Floyd, a guy who's uh, clearly um, from the community, the black community in the US, he's been uh, killed by a police officer. That does resonate here, doesn't it, within the indigenous community? Oh, uh, to some degree, to a to a small degree. I th- well, um, to a to a small degree. But again, I, I think a lot of the outrage here is fake, um, because it comes down to this simple point. Uh, if we just look at Australia, for example, and the same could be said about the US. Well, and this is the sort of thing, if I had to say, wrap this interview up very quickly and and I wanted to get one point across, this is what it would be. Why do we not see the same, hear the same outrage when Aboriginal people are hurting and killing other Aboriginal people? Now, I could give several examples, and it's unfortunate just in the um, past month, a couple of months, there's been a few sad examples of where Aboriginal people have killed Aboriginal people. And I'm not going to give the specifics of those details. I don't see the need to um, exploit it. Although, interestingly, um, the Indigenous renter crowds over here have no problem exploiting um, a white-on-black death when it suits their agenda. But the fact that there's silence on black-on-black killings here in Australia is very, very sad because that silence creates a distorted picture of what's happening here in Australia. Um, And just with regard to the criticism of Black Lives Matter, and they really should be criticised, the main criticism has been, well, white lives matter as well. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. But I think the... The biggest distinction we should be focusing on and discussing is why is it only those black lives that are killed by white people matter and we're silent on those black lives killed by other black people? That's the issue for me. How do you... See, this is a question of conditioning, isn't it? Yes. Right? And feed... It's a question of conditioning. Yes. Because... And that becomes um, interesting for me watching the discussion. And also, it starts to verge on you know, the, the politics, not only within the broader community, but also within the Indigenous community itself, does it not? Yes, absolutely. Now, if we can explore the issue of the black-on-black debt, so how do you, um, how do you 
begin the process of doing what you believe is not being properly done. Okay, good. Question. How do you how do you how do you fix it? Because I'm I'm looking at this situation, saying, okay, I know uh, when I was um, back uh, at university studying journalism um, in 1991, last year of my degree, that was when the uh, the Royal Commission into Black Debts in Custody reported. I now have grey hair, Anthony. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was a long time ago. Um, and that issue, uh, uh, there are still unresolved issues arising from that Royal Commission in some people's minds. So that will remain. Please let me know if you think I'm wrong here. But that's going to remain a part of the narrative uh, in communication with government, well, governments and oppositions and others, because that remains a sore of some description. Mm. How do you elevate what you're talking about to become a better part of or greater part of the discourse? Okay, very good question. Um, the very last thing we want is, well, it's got to be done in a sensitive way. Yes, I'd like to highlight the fact that here in Australia, Aboriginal people die at the hands of other Aboriginal people, and that's a problem. But you've got to do it carefully because there is a risk that if that narrative is discussed, it then takes on a life of its own where all Aboriginal people are tarred with the same brush. I mean, I mean a bit like what the left or whatever you want to call them are doing now where, you know, Indigenous, where non-Indigenous people, uh, particularly police, are being tarred with that brush that they're all brutal and that sort of thing. We don't want to create the impression that um, Aboriginal people are just killing Aboriginal people everywhere. We want to keep it in context. That is, the majority of Aboriginal people are just ordinary folk like you and I. Uh, it's in particular hotspots where you have these... Um, you know, high rates of violence. So, you know, we always want to maintain the correct context. Context. Well, how do you ma how do you maintain perspective? By having honest and responsible journalism, for a start. Um, keeping the balance, like as I just suggested, re reminding people that hey, yeah, we have a problem with the high rates of violence in Aboriginal communities, but. This is not reflective of the Aboriginal population in general. Like I said, the majority, the majority of Aboriginal people, uh, are ordinary folk like you and I, who just like to get on with life and be contributors to society. So highlight it, but put the context there as well. One of the things I've noticed, and I had a quick look at your Twitter feed yesterday, is that. Um, This issue of um, uh, you know, Aboriginals or Indigenous people rather um, killing other Indigenous people is, appears to be very sensitive to the point where anyone that raises it uh, gets called names. 
Yes. Uh, now, you've been subject to some of that. Like, I'd like to explore this briefly. How do you feel when uh, that kind of terminology is thrown around and particularly thrown at you? What terminology? Racist? Um, oh, you, you know, terms like coconut oh. and, and, and Uncle Tom. I mean, it, it, how do you feel when that is thrown at you? As I as I said last night in an interview, on a personal level, that sort of thing doesn't worry me in the slightest. Um, you know, I'm not not upset by the words of a of an idiot. But what it does do, it shuts down the debate, or comes close to shutting down the debate. And as you said earlier, you talked about playing the the ball and not the man, and that's basically playing the man. So as soon as that person uses that label on you, um, it just basically means they're not going to listen to anything else you say because anything you say can be dismissed on the grounds that the fact that you are a traitor or whatever. Um, so that's where I'm concerned. That's where I find it frustrating. Just that it shuts down the debate. Like I said, on a personal level, no, those, those sorts of words are... Uh, bit of a badge of honour, actually. Um, it just shuts down the debate. And I'm all for keeping the debate going. It's, it's fine to dis disagree with other people, but maintain a bit of civility and respect. Allow the other person to express their views. And if you disagree, well, then tell them and explain why you disagree, but don't shut them down. Is there another possible complexion I can place on this, which is... Um, if somebody calls somebody a name, does that effectively mean they actually lose the debate as well? They go well. They they're heading towards losing the debate. Um, they they're losing credibility when they do that sort of thing. Um, and you know, I can understand in a heated debate on a motive topic. Sure, there's going to be a um, a bit of name-calling, if you like, and that sort of thing. But that should be on well, the, I mean, should be the periphery. Pa passion is one thing, Anthony. You can, be, you can be passionate about something, but you can craft your words in such a way that they um, are, uh, are persuasive. Sure. Um, and uh, uh, give, give more weight to... The substantive argument rather than flash and colour. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> and um, oh, I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, look, yeah. In you know, when emotions are running high, sure, there's there's going to be a you know couple of insults exchanged, but that should be kept to a minimum. It, it shouldn't be front and centre. Uh, calling another person a name shouldn't be your main argument or defence. When we look at the policy space within the Indigenous community, Anthony, you, you know, we've dealt with, um, the, I guess, to some extent with the issue of, of the demonstrations, protests here, um, how much of it do you, do you think is being led by, you know, by emotion rather than, you know, by evidence? Uh, a lot. 
Because you're, 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 you're an academic. You know exactly what I mean. I've, I've sort of worked and taught in the academic world. And academic literature and academic analysis relies on evidence, empirical evidence, not solely on feelings. Feelings is something different. How does it play out when you do your research on Indigenous matters? Well, not just on Indigenous matters. You, you raised a good point. Um, well, you raised a point for me to make a interesting observation. And I'll try and dig out the... That, might, that, that, might, not be an entire, that might not be entirely an accident, Anthony. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, I'll try and dig out a quote. But you said, it, uh, I think you said something like, yeah, not, not emotions, but... Um, empirical evidence did you say something like that correct yeah okay the, the problem is i agree but the problem is what is considered empirical evidence is often dubious so someone goes out and does a survey um you know it can be quantitative or qualitative does a nice analysis and then that's called empirical evidence um, when it's basically just built on the back of people's emotions, and you know, that that, can, that 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 is one, yeah, that is one or one method of um, sure obtaining a sense of opinion. Let me let what, me just, what, let me give you this quote. A fellow called uh, Liam Hudson wrote a book. I think it was called The Cult of Fact. Even what appears, what even what appears to be irrefutably scientific and objective, is always based upon the presuppositions of the observer, and that these presuppositions are usually ideological. So, and as I said in my article on news.com the other day, it's not so counter to common sense. People don't don't go around. Um, making observations and pulling them together and drawing conclusions, they generally start out with conclusions and then go and gather observations and facts to support those conclusions. Well, in other words, um, we know we know A is a fact. Yes. We just know. We haven't observed anything that says A is an absolute irrefutable truth. But we're going to go off and put everything, everything in our basket, all the eggs in our basket, that tell us A is irrefutable. Yes. And like the Australian uh, social scientist Hugh Mackay said, the observations we make in life tend to confirm the perspective from which they were made. Which, which is also very true. Mm. Uh, it, 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 a bit like the old cliche, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Now, look, I'm the first to admit, too, that that rule applies to both sides. Um, but I do think it's um, it's happening on one side more so than the other side. One of the interesting discussions I've had over the past 12 months um and something else I covered in uh, the introduction to the, the mundane book of articles and, and speeches is the voice to the parliament mm -hmm. emerging from 
uh, the Uluru Statement. There's, there seems to be a need for some kind of dialogue um, of sorts. Uh, not that dialogues don't exist currently, but a dialogue that emerges um, or is organised in another way um, and feeds into to policy making is how I read it. Um, I'm sure people will correct me if I got this wrong. But do you see something like that as being useful in contributing to the broader discussion and informing a broader uh, understanding of the kinds of things we were talking about earlier, where you have um, you know, different reasons why um, there's a, you know, people um, people either die in custody or they die at the hands of partners or friends or family or whatever have you. You mean the voice? Is that what? Uh, hmm? You mean the voice? Yeah, the voice. Well, look, if if what we've seen the past week or indeed, you know, pick almost any week in the last year or two years or five years, if that's a preview of what the voice is going to be like where it's dominated by um, ideologies and um, distortions of facts, no, I don't think it'll be helpful. I think it will um, be destructive. Now, just one general comment on the voice, and I say this also about the treaty, is I haven't, you know, yes, I'm against, I'm, well, I'm not a fan of it. I don't really favour it. However, I don't outright dismiss it. I'm happy to hear good arguments for it. And so far, for the voice, I haven't heard, um, really haven't heard <coughs> any good arguments for it or how it's going to work. But I leave the door open. If it's introduced and it works, I'll be the very first person to say I was wrong. Let's continue in this direction. However, if like say the Kevin Rudd's apology, after it happens, and then there's no lasting benefit apart from you know, warm, fuzzy feelings for a minute. If we try it and it doesn't work, I'll say, okay, we've tried it. Now can we get on with the important business? We've tried it, it didn't work. Let's start focusing on the real stuff. Do you, do you think the, you know, well, the apology was clearly important? It had to happen. Um, but Warren Mundine in the interview I did with him last week uh, talked about the fact that there's a lot of there are a lot of people who are sincere, but sincerity, and I'm paraphrasing, sincerity doesn't necessarily deliver outcomes. Sure, and for those who are sincere, their sincerity benefits them. Okay, so, no, I wasn't opposed to the apology. My point was, um, look, let me just talk briefly about the apology. For those who want to give an apology, that's fine. Uh, but an apology should never, ever be forced out of anyone. And... If a person wants true healing, and we, you know, at the time and even today, we still talk about, oh, you know, healing, we need this for our healing, we need that. One thing that is better than receiving an apology for healing is offering forgiveness. If people really want to heal, if they feel they've, there's some scar that they need to heal from, 
try offering forgiveness. So I don't, I didn't oppose the apology. Um, just like I don't, I don't oppose acknowledging the invasion or anything like that. What I do oppose is this thought, well, this will fix everything. Or that other people also must apologise or acknowledge. No, it's a personal decision. Okay, let me, let me, can we play with that? Because you've just said something really interesting that, that that's, uh, poses a further question. And that is in the space of policy making in the Indigenous portfolio, how often do you hear the word forgiveness discussed? Mm. Or on the streets, or on the Indigenous-specific social media sites. You tell me, how often do you hear it discussed? How often do you see the people marching around with banners saying, we forgive? Really? If at all, mm. probably not. And and, and that you've ra you raised an interesting point. Yes, and if I can just add one thing, similar to what I said of, about an apology should never be forced, I am not um, for forcing people to forgive either. Again, it has to be a, a free choice. But your point, your point being is in... Um, in this, this area is going to uh, get somewhere um, across the board. There may need to be in a sense of even entertaining a notion of you know, forgiveness. Things happen. Um, that doesn't mean you don't do the right thing in policy, but if you bring bring some kind of personal resolution to a... Or if you get closure, because forgiveness is sometimes about closure, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you're talking about the need for parts of the Indigenous community, perhaps, to, to get personal closure and then deal with issues of policy. What do we need to fix on an ongoing basis? What do we need to fix? Um, well, you know, what do we need? Yeah, but, but, but once, you, once you've dealt with the closure, that is, you've, you've dealt with the, an apology or you've dealt with the side of forgiveness, then you can look more broadly about what needs to be fixed in a policy setting going forward. Yes. Well, I think uh, someone like Warren can give a better answer to that, but it would come down to... The practical things. We want Aboriginal kids to see Aboriginal adults working as normal, as being very normal. And you know, far too often in communities, they don't get to see the adults engaged in meaningful work. So, you know, if I had to boil it down to one thing, that's what I would want. And of course, you know, that has offshoots that, uh, in order to be working, you've generally got to have a, a decent education and so um, kids will realize that and they'll want to be in school their parents will want them to be in school because they realize uh, when, I, when I get an education from school that's when I'll be able to get um, 
then get a job like uncle or, or go to university like auntie or, uh, or whatever. Yeah, uh, Warren Mundine does talk a lot about small business and about the need to encourage people to to get into work, to build up self-esteem. Yep. Um, it, yeah, so that was, yeah, of course, and I, I've spoken about that very often. Uh, working isn't just about um, economic gains. It's also about, it builds confidence, self-esteem, that sort of thing. So on a practical government policy level, whatever you want to see it, well, whatever you want to say, when it comes to jobs and businesses for Indigenous people, I, uh, I can't think of a better person than Mundine to be in that position to be guiding that sort of thing. So uh, Warren's a good good talker. You know, he's got a couple of books out. Um, I like reading his opinion pieces. I like seeing him on YouTube, etc., etc. But I, I'd really like to see him um, in a high position in government where his portfolio is looking after employment, enterprise, small business for Indigenous people. That would make a big difference. Now, there's something that I haven't asked you, that given your, uh, given your the place in which you work, um, you, I've got a lot of time for academics and the work they do. What's the principal area? What's your principal area of research interest, Anthony? Just so people understand where you're coming from and all of this. Okay, where I work, I guess a good way of describing it would be education, indigenous, and psychology, where the three overlap. Okay, and the you know three are related, and sometimes some of the projects we do lean one way more than the other. It might be more Aboriginal focused, other times it's more psychology focused, other times it's more education focused, but generally speaking, where the three overlap. Um, so, you know, it's again about getting good ed educational outcomes for Indigenous kids and employment prospects for um, adults, because we know that those two things, not just those, not just those two things alone, but those two things, jobs and education, make up a big slice of the pie um, where the well-being of Indigenous people are concerned and, of course, the well-being of the country because once you improve the outcomes and well-being of Indigenous people, you're really improving the well-being of the country. Are there any... Um, uh, I mean, obviously, you're doing uh, research work at the ACU. What are the uh, what what are the papers and things that you've had published in recent times? Uh, like I said, sort of e educational psychology um, applied to Indigenous people mostly. Okay. Yeah. Have you got Have you got any? Are any of those publicly accessible? People will have heard of your news.com.au article, obviously, because it's been given a bit of publicity on Twitter and elsewhere. But if they wanted to uh, look look up material that you've written to, to get a better appreciation of uh, the sort of work you do, where would they go? Uh, look, they're publicly available, usually, well, often from a university library. But, I mean, the academic stuff, I mean, you can just Google it. Um, doesn't make for interesting, enlightening reading, except for other academics. I'm not saying it doesn't have a purpose, but 
um, the audience for whom it appeals to is very narrow. But if they just want to see my general writings, like the one in the news.com.au last weekend, yep. uh, just go to www.anthonydillon, that's D-I-L-L-O-N, www.anthonydillon.com.au. And I have a blog section there with, um, you know, there'd be over, over 40 short essays there on a variety of topics. And that'll, uh, that'll probably do people for the next five minutes, I would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, Anthony, it's a, it's a good, good point at which to, uh, to, to thank you for taking the time out to talk to me today. Uh, and it's, it's always good to get uh, a, a bit of a, a, a different perspective, but also have a more detailed discussion because we've covered a fair bit of ground in, um, in the time we've been talking. So thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Uh, th- thank you and hope we can talk again sometime soon. Anytime. Thank you.